Amen. Thank you, Mike. Well, good morning again. We are continuing in our series on the book of Revelation. We are in, I believe, week six. Today we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter seven. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over there. Um, I don't know if you've ever had a knock on the door from some Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, but if you've ever read any of their literature or talked with some Jehovah's Witnesses, they have this thing about 144,000. Um, they believe that the, actually, originally, they believe that there would be 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses, um, and that when they got to 144,000 witnesses, that Jesus would return. Well, they've overshot 144,000 witnesses, and so when that happened and Jesus didn't return, they said, oh, no, 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 we had it wrong. Um, the 144,000 are actually the elders of our church. So when we get to 144,000 elders in our Jehovah's Witnesses churches, when we get to that number, then Jesus will return. And so their idea is that when Jesus returns, he'll come and he'll take all the Jehovah's Witnesses, the 144,000 elders, they'll go on up to heaven. The rest of the Jehovah's Witnesses will stay here on the earth, uh, the ones that weren't elders at their church. They'll stay here on the earth and they'll get to inhabit paradise earth, that Jesus is going to make this place perfect like Eden again, and that the rest of us, well, we'll just, we'll vanish, we'll disappear, that'll be the end of us. So that's kind of what their take on that is. Today we're going to look at this passage, Revelation chapter 9, that talks about the 144,000. We'll identify who they are. I want to give you just a little bit of background of some material that we didn't get to last week. We looked at Revelation chapters 4 and 5, where it's the second of John's vision. He gets a look up into heaven. He sees um, God seated on his throne there, and Jesus walks up into the scene. Jesus takes the scroll out of God's hand, and the scroll has seven seals on it. And then in chapter 6, what we didn't get to is Jesus begins to unpack this scroll. So he begins to pop those seven seals. And so he gets all the way through in chapter 6, six of the seals. In chapter 8, he'll get to the seventh one. We're not going to tackle that today. Um, but those six seals, with each of the six seals, the first four, these riders show up on a horse, and they're different color horses, and they're different color riders, and each of them has a specific task. You can read this in Revelation chapter 6. You probably read that this past week, because I know you're all following the reading plan, right? And so, um, so, he's, so these riders show up, and each of them has a task, and the task is to go out and destroy parts of the earth. Uh, they're going out to take away peace. They're going out to destroy the, the trees. They're going out to destroy the water. They're going out to destroy all sorts of things. And then there's two more seals that pop open. They have to do with other people that show up, some of the martyrs, and they're crying out for God to, um, to set, you know, bring judgment upon the people that had harmed them. Um, and then we get to chapter 7, which is today, which is a continuation of that vision. He's still looking up into heaven, and these riders come to a stop, and kind of everything kind of comes to a stop, and then God gives us some new information. So if you have your Bibles, let's stand together. You can follow on the screen behind me, Revelation chapter 7. We'll be reading just verses 1 through 4, Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, a continuation of the vision that we read last week. All right, here we go, beginning at verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. You may be seated. All right. So you all understood that, right? We can just say amen and start working on cutting down some trees. Yeah, yeah that's right. Or getting, or getting to lunch. All right, so let's, let's kind of walk through these verses together and just see what's going on in these verses. We have the background. We know what's preceded this. 
So let's go ahead and dive into these together. Beginning at verse 1, it says, After this, that is after the opening of the six seals, the riders have showed up. They've been out there doing their, their best, right, into the, in the earth and uh, bringing destruction. And it says, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Now let me talk a little bit about that word earth. Um, I have a slide for you here. And the word that's translated, that it's translated from in the Greek is the word gain. Um, the word gain literally means dirt or soil. It's arable soil. It's soil that's good for farming. This is soil that you can grow crops in. And so that's the idea here. Um, I have a map for you as well. And this map shows the Fertile Crescent. And the Fertile Crescent is an area that extends from Mesopotamia all the way through Israel, uh, that little slice of land there along the eastern shore of the Mediterranean, and through Israel down into northern Africa, all the way down to about Egypt. And if you notice, that piece of land forms, if you were to draw a line from one side, we're going this way, from one side to the other, it kind of forms like a fertile crescent, right? Or a, or a, a crescent moon shape. And so scholars call this area the fertile crescent because it's the piece of land, it's the area of land in this part of the world where you can grow crops. And that's kind of what that green blob section represents. It's the area where you can have farmland, where you can um, sustain uh, human life because the land there is productive. Now, the land around it on that map is what? Desert, right? You can't grow any crops out in the desert. That's unproductive land. It's not what they would refer to as part of the gain. The gain was, in their mind, when they heard that word gain, they weren't thinking of the whole globe. They weren't thinking of the whole earth. They were thinking of that fertile crescent, that part of the land, that part of, of where they lived, that where they could grow these crops. And so when we read the word earth, we think of the whole globe. But that's not what they had in mind when they were to use this Greek word gain. It would have meant to them this particular spot on the globe. They had a separate word in Greek that would refer to the whole thing, the whole world, and that's the word cosmos. And the word cosmos is where we get our word cosmos from. For example, in the scriptures, it says John chapter 3 and verse 16, for God so loved the cosmos, God so loved the world, the whole thing, that he gave his one and only son. Um, and so this idea that, uh, that, that what we're talking about here, these four corners of the earth, kind of go back to our map for a second, you can imagine that these angels are literally seated at the four corners of the gain, at the four corners of this part of the world, and holding back this destruction that these four riders have been on their way to bring. Let's get back into chapter 7 and verse 1 again. So it says, After the six seals were opened, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the gain. And uh, what was their task? What were they out there to do? It says, verse, uh, rest of verse 1, which says, holding back the four winds of the earth. And so these winds are winds of destruction. These winds, if you look in the Old Testament, anytime these heavy winds are coming along, these are winds of destruction. These are kind of winds that take down 100-year-old pecan trees in South Georgia, right? This is the kind of wind that you would expect that brings destruction, not a little breeze, not something that makes it feel like a good pleasant day. This is not the kind of wind that you want. These are winds of destruction that are coming through the gain, that are coming through this part of the world. Now look at verse 2. It says, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun. Where does the sun arise? In the east. And so the east is always in Bible. It's always a place of hope. And so I see another angel ascending from the rising of the sun. And that angel was carrying a seal of the living God, it says. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels, that is to the four riders that have these winds of destruction with them, and who had been given power to harm the earth, that is to harm the gain, that part of the world. Verse 3, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees 
until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So this angel cries out to the four who are the four riders who are bringing destruction. Hey, look, stop everything for just a second. Do not do not do anything more until we go in and seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. Um, until we until we do that, and so the servants of God are the people of God, the ones who claim to follow the Lord. You say, well, what was the seal on their forehead? Are we talking about some kind of a stamp? Are we talking about some kind of a tattoo here? Well, the Bible tells us what the seal that the Lord gives us is. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter one and verse thirteen. He says, "When we believed in Jesus, we were sealed with the blessed Holy Spirit." So the seal is not a stamp. The seal is not a tattoo. The seal is literally the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling inside of you. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are a temple of God, a temple of the Holy Spirit living inside of you? And so that's that seal that God places on you and you and you and me. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of us. He is that seal. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, Paul also says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed before the day of redemption. So the mark of the believers living in the gain, you have our perspective, right, of that part of the world, living in that part of the world, is the mark of the Holy Spirit, and the mark of the Holy Spirit is the mark of salvation. Now what's unfolding here is that these four angels have been brought to a stop. These four riders have been told to time out, take a halt for just a minute, and don't go in and continue any more destruction in this part of the world until, it says, until um, we get the number of converts until we get these people sealed with the Holy Spirit, until we get the number of converts that we're looking for. And then these writers can then go back in and finish the job. That's basically what we just read in verses 1 and 2. Y'all got all that, right? First time around. All right, verse 4. So it says, Paul writes, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. So God intends to save 144,000 out of this part of the world, out of this gain, it says, from every tribe of the peoples of Africa. That's not what it says, is it? From every tribe of the peoples of the Americas. No, it's not what it says, is it? It says, from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So this 144,000 is not going to come from dark corners. The 144,000 is not going to come from Eastern Europe. The 144,000 is going to come from the sons of Israel. It's going to come from the racial Jews. It's going to come from the Jewish people. That's where this 144,000 is going to come from. And Paul goes on, or John goes on to confirm this. He says in verse 5, um, he says, where are we going to find the 144,000? Well, let me just really spell it out here for you. 12,000 will, will come from the tribe of Judah were sealed. And he says 12,000 from Gad, 12,000 from Reuben. Um, and these are all the 12, this is the historic 12 tribes of Israel. So the 144,000, he's saying, are going co- to be national Israelites, are going to be racially Jewish people. That's where this 144,000, they're not going to be Jehovah's Witness elders. Sorry. That's, they're going to be people who are Jewish that come to faith in Christ. That's who John has in view. That's who he has in mind. And it makes sense because that's, that's who's living in the game. That's who's living in that part of the world where these guys are off in the four corners getting ready to converge right where Israel is. Now, if I'm a futurist, right, if I think of the book of Revelation as something that's still yet to be fulfilled way off into the future, that I don't think it has anything to do with 70 AD. I think there's going to be another temple that's going to be built, and then that's going to be destroyed, and then all this stuff's going to come through. And, and, and I think that Revelation's way off into the future. Um, 
I'm still looking for a small contingency of Jewish people who are going to come to faith in Christ. Or if I think that the book of Revelation is about what happened in 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem and that picture that you see here behind me on the screen, if that is what I have in view, still, even with that point of view, I recognize that this is a small contingency of racial Jewish people who are going to come to faith in Christ. So, you know, whatever camp you end up in, everybody lands on the same page, believing that this is racially Jewish people who are going to come to faith in Christ. All right, let's deal with this 144,000. Is it really 144,000, like literally exactly that number, or is this supposed to be more like a uh, figurative understanding? I think that this is a figurative understanding. The number 1,000 in the Scripture always refers to a number of completion. And so God is saying here, I mean, he says the exact same number from the tribe of Benjamin is from the tribe of Gad. Everyone's going to have 12,000 come from each of them. I don't think God literally means when we get to 12,000, and that's it for Gad, no more from there. When we get to 12,000, no more from Reuben, we can't have any more. I think God is literally saying here that when we get to the complete number, when we get to the number that I'm looking for, then, um, these, then, then, the, then the, the, the four riders can rush back in and take back over um, the game, take over and destroy that part of the world. Now, here's the kicker. History confirms that all this has already happened. Um, about a year into the war between the Romans and the Jews, remember the Jewish people revolted against Rome, kicked them out of Israel. And so Nero Caesar declares war against the Jewish people in 67 AD, about February. And then Vespasian, the general of the, of the Roman army, uh, begins to lead his legions uh, down across um, uh, eastern through Asia Minor and down across the, the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea and heading down toward Israel. They engage them in 67, late mid or the summer of 67 AD. In June, on June 9th of 68 AD, so a year later, the war's been going on for a year, Nero Caesar stabs himself in the throat, commits suicide. As a result of that, um, turmoil and unrest break loose because there was no appointed heir. Caesar had no appointed heir. And so what happens is you have all this grasping for the throne of Rome. And uh, three different guys over the course of a year and a half are, become Caesars, and they just knocking, they're knocking one another off, right? There's all this uh, backstabbing, literally backstabbing going on. And so one, one Altho, Galba, I can't remember the name of the other fella, but one after another after another, I didn't think they were a part of those three, but you'll have to go, to go to Wikipedia and you'll find out the answer for it. I feel like I'm, I'm Beto O'Rourke up here today. Does anybody? <laughs> anyway, um, so during this time, um, when, when there's up, upheaval and there's all this turmoil going on, General Vespasian and his son Titus, um, who were leading the wars against the Jewish people, didn't think it was a very good idea for them to have all these Roman soldiers off in, uh, in the gain of fighting against Israel when there's turmoil back home. And so he thinks to himself, you know what, let's disengage from this war. And that's what they did. They, they called a temporary timeout on this war with the Jewish people and went back home, and Vespasian ended up becoming the next emperor of Rome. And then he sent his son Titus forward to, uh, to go and take out the rest of the Jewish people. And so Eusebius, a Christian writer of the third, third century, writes about this history, and he says, During this cessation of conflict, many Christians, heeding the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 to flee from Jerusalem, um, he goes on to say that they did just that. These Jewish converts to Christianity dispersed across Asia Minor and southern Europe, joining the churches that were already established throughout that region. The war would resume in 69 AD, 
after Vespasian was appointed the next Caesar. And so the timeout was over, and his son Titus would go on to lead the Roman soldiers against um, Jerusalem. Uh, they would, Jerusalem would fall in, seven, in August, September, early September of 70 AD. And again, that's that picture that you see depicted behind me. Now, I want to point out one more verse here for you, and it comes from chap- verse 9, Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, and it reads like this. It says, after all of this, after this, the people were sealed that were supposed to be sealed, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. So couldn't count this group. So could count the 144,000, the Jewish, racially Jewish people who are going to come to Christ, could count them, they're sealed. But this group I can't count. And who is this group? He says they're going to come from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. That's a different group. Those aren't people that live in the game. Those are people that come from all around the cosmos, right? all around the world, people that represent every, not, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every language, all that sort of stuff. They're not Jewish people. So you have one group that God's going to number and a second group that can't be numbered, that can't be counted just because there's so many of them. There's a first group that will consist of racial Jews, ethnic Jews, people from the 12 tribes of Israel, and then there'll be a second group of people that are going to come from all over the place. And friends, isn't this what we saw happen in the first several decades after Christ's ascension, after he left the earth leading up to 70 AD? The disciples dispersed, or the apostles dispersed across all of Europe, across all of Asia Minor, off into the Far East. They've headed down into North Africa. And there are churches today that were founded in Ethiopia by people like Matthew, the disciple Matthew. There are churches in Pakistan today that were founded by uh, the disciples of Christ, like Bartholomew, that are dedicated to Bartholomew, thanking Bartholomew for coming and bringing the gospel out here all the way to the reaches, the far reaches of the world, at least at that point in history. Um, Now, I got one more passage of scripture that I want for us to look at before we get to our most important question. It's Romans chapter 9. You have your Bibles, flip over to Romans chapter 9. And I just want to knit together, if I may, two, two passages of Scripture here. Revelation chapter 7 and Romans chapter 9. Just to see what's, what, what Paul and John, how they were like-minded here. So Romans chapter 9, let's take a look at verse 3. Um, <clears throat> Paul writes, for, remember he's writing to uh, Christians in Rome. Hadn't visited them before, just sending them a letter telling them, hey, I hope I'm going to be able to come see you. Verse 3, he says, For I could wish that I myself, I wish that I was accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Verse 4, he says, they are Israelites. So Paul's saying here, I wish, I wish upon myself that I was cut off from Christ. I wish upon myself that I would go to hell. I wish upon myself that God would write me out of eternity if, if for the sake of, my own kinsmen, my own family, my own Jewish people whom I love so dearly, I wish that God would write me off from eternity if they would come to faith in Christ. I give up my, my hope for eternity for the sake of my own people coming to faith in Christ. And the price that Paul says, again, that he wishes that... He, and so there's a price, though, that Paul says because they've rejected the Messiah, because they've not um, embraced Christ, here's what's going to happen to them. Chapter 9 and verse 27, he says, Paul's quoting from Isaiah in the Old Testament. He says, here's what's coming. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, though we're in the millions now, only a remnant of them, only a small contingency of those millions 
144,000 will be saved. Remember Paul's writing in 57 AD. Um, just 10 years before, Nero is going to declare war against the Jewish people. And Paul, 10 years before that war begins, knows what's coming. Paul anticipates in his heart and his spirit that there's a war coming. There's a destruction. God is not just going to allow the Jewish people to have rejected their Messiah and get off scot-free and just ignore that. Have crucified their Messiah and God's just going to blow it off. God's not interested in doing that. And Paul knows in his heart that there's a really difficult, destructive period coming upon Israel. And then he writes in verse 28, notice the scope and the time frame that Paul anticipates for this destruction. He says, for the Lord will carry out his sentence. Remember writing this in 57 AD, 10 years before the war begins. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth, the gain. How's he going to carry it out? Fully. All the way. Total destruction will rain down upon that region of the world. And he's going to do it, he says, without delay. That is, the time for it is near. The time for it is soon. Paul knows it's impending, it's coming. And he's brokenhearted, knowing that this is coming upon his people, upon the Jewish people, upon the nation of Israel. He's brokenhearted about it. He wishes that he could give up his own spot in eternity for the sake of his own kinsmen. Okay, well, that's our treatment of this text for today, which means it's time for us to ask our most important question, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, I appreciate the history lesson again this morning, and it's good to know that, that I can say that, I can tell the Jehovah's Witnesses that they're not, you know, the ones that, they're, that God had in mind here. Um, but outside of that, what difference does any of this make to my life today? Well, um, bad theology has a way of resulting in bad behavior. Bad theology has a way of resulting in bad behavior. And the church has been plagued for near some 2,000 years now with bad theology with regard to the nation of Israel. Um, there's this, this, uh, this concept that has been around for a long time, and the term that's been assigned to it in more recent centuries is the term replacement theology. It's this idea that God has moved on from the nation of Israel, that God has done what he was going to do in 70 AD, and that he's just said, I'm out of here, right? I'm gone, and I'm, I'm hanging out with the Gentiles now, and you Jewish people, I've wiped my hands of you, wiped the dust off my feet, and I'm done. I've walked away. And that's what replacement theology is, is that God has moved on from the nation of Israel. And again, this is bad theology. Um, and that bad theology has led to a lot of bad behavior. For example, in 19, I'm sorry, in 1099, the Crusaders massacred tens and tens of thousands of Jewish people on their way, on their march through Asia Minor, on their way down to uh, take this capital city, uh, the city of Jerusalem, um, believing them to be a con contemptible Christ killers. In 1290, Edward I threw all the Jews out of England. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, while Ferdinand and Isabella back home were uh, were conducting the Inquisition, and killed tens of thousands of Jews and threw the rest of them out of Spain. John Chrysostom, the famous church father from the first century, said, and I quote, it is because of you Jews killing Christ that there is no restoration, no mercy, and no defense for you, end of quote. The Synod of Clermont, 535 AD, forbid any Jews from holding public office. The Synod of Breslau, 
or Breslau, required that all Jews must live in ghettos separated from Christians in all Christian society. You say, Gordon, I mean, this is some really bad stuff that's happened to the Jewish people, and we could go on and on and on throughout history. You say, but this couldn't have been done by Christians. I mean, these were not people that, you know, maybe they were like churchgoers, right? Maybe they were just nominal Christians. Maybe they were people who just kind of showed up every once in a while, but they really weren't believers in Christ. Maybe church for them was just a culture. You know, surely these weren't real Christian people, right? Well, let me share with you one more quote. Um, I got a picture of this guy here for you. You tell me, see if you can tell me who he is. Um, He said, and I quote, their synagogue should be set on fire and spread over with dirt. Their homes should be broken down and destroyed. Passports and traveling privileges should be forbidden to all Jews. Let them stay at home. And if we are afraid that they might harm us, then let us do what other countries have done and drive them out of our country for all time. Who was that guy? Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the author of the Reformation, the guy who wrote sola scriptura, scripture only, the guy who planted back in front of us salvation by faith alone. You think he was a Christian? Yeah, I would say he was probably heading for heaven. You say, Gordon, how can this be then? How can Christians execute on these ideas and go out and attack Jewish people and kill and slaughter Jewish people? How can Christians do that? Um, Well, it's because bad theology always results in bad behavior. So to make sure that we got God's view in mind regarding the Jewish people, regarding his plan for Israel, let's flip over one more time in our Bible, Revelation, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 11 this time, Romans chapter 11. And again, Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and he says to them, hey, look, Romans chapter 11, verse 1, some of y'all started to get a little arrogant about your idea of the Jewish people. So he says, I ask you then, has God rejected his people? Referring to the Israelites, referring to the Jewish people. Has God rejected the Jewish people? And then he writes in very clear statement, no, he has not. By no exclamation point means. No, he has not. He says, I am an Israelite. God had not rejected me. God didn't just walk away from the Jewish people. Of course he hasn't done that. And then he goes on to say in verse 25, Romans 11 and verse 25, here's what uh, he says, lest you be wise in your own eyes, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Here's what's happened. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. That is, has come upon the Jewish people. And that word in the Greek for hardening is actually a word, the word callous. Uh, you think of the calluses that you get on your hands. And so it's this callousness that has come upon their heart, and this hardening. And notice that the hardening is just partial. The hardening is not a forever hardening, but it's a partial hardening. And he goes on to say in Romans 9, 10, and 11 why this has happened. It's so that Christianity would explode amongst the Gentiles, so that it would explode outside of national Israel. So you can read that this week. It'll be part of your reading plan. But nevertheless, it's this idea that God has put upon the Jewish people a hardening, a partial hardening. Now, it's not a total hardening. It's a partial hardening. The idea that there will still be some Jewish people who come to faith in Christ. But it's going to be difficult. They're going to be a really tough nut to crack. But nevertheless, there will be some who will come to faith in Christ. And then you say, well, how long is all this going to last? Well, he tells us there, verse 25, end of verse 25, he says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So Paul says this partial hardening will last until the number of Gentiles that God is looking for, until the number of non-Jews that God foresees who will come to faith in Christ 
until that number is fulfilled, that's how long this partial hardening is going to last. Paul goes on to say in verse 29, he says, talking about the Jewish people, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God has not forgotten the nation of Israel. Couldn't be more clear than that statement right there. Now, what difference does this make to your life and mine? Well, it makes a big difference. Two things. Number one, if God is not finished with the Jewish people, neither should we. Neither should we be. Um, in our foreign policy, I'm so proud of our president to reestablish or to, to see Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and to stand firm alongside of Israel that America is going to be a friend of Israel going forward from here until hopefully Jesus comes back. Um, that we need to be a friend of that we need to be a friend of the Jewish people. That we need to uh, when anti-Semitism pops up, that we need to be the people who are speaking up as Christians to say, "Hey, look, this has happened before in history, and it's because people had bad theology." God is not done with the nation of Israel, and so when those ideas begin to creep up in conversations, we say, "You know what? God has a plan for Israel." There's just a partial hardening of their heart. God still wants some Israelites to come to faith in Christ and Him, even through. Um, the time until Jesus returns. And then number two, the second uh, difference that this makes to your life and mine um, is that Jesus is the only way for the Jewish people to get to heaven. Jesus is still the only way for Jewish people to get to heaven. Jo John chapter 14 and verse... Did I say that right? John chapter 14 and verse 6 says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus talking there. He says, hey, you want to know how to get to Jesus? You want to know how to get to the Father? You want to know how to get to where the Father is in heaven? You come to him through Jesus Christ. Jesus said there's no other way to get to heaven but through Christ. A young man in our church recently came to me and he said, hey, what about the Jewish people? How are they going to get to heaven? I mean, how, how, what, does God have some alternate plan for them to get to heaven? No, the same plan that God gives to you and to me to get to heaven is the same plan that God gives to the Jewish people that they need to put their faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. They need to recognize that he is God's son, that he came here to the earth, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a death on the cross, that he resurrected again from the grave, and that he is their hope for eternity, friends. Jesus said, no one will come to the Father but through me. And that includes for the Jewish people. If you're here today and you've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, this is something for you to think about. I'm not sure how you plan on getting to heaven, uh, you may be thinking, well, I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to show God all the good things that I did in the world. I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to tell him about all the people that I helped out. I'm going to go to heaven and tell God about how I wasn't so bad as some of those other people. And that God will let me into heaven on the basis of the merits uh, of which I lived in this life. Because that's how the Jehovah's Witnesses are planning on getting to heaven. They're looking to the blood of Jesus, but then they're also looking to all their good works. They're counting on their good works to be what sends them over the edge, what lets them get into heaven. Friends, I'm telling you what, Jesus said, there's no way to get to the Father except through me. You can't bring your good works, you can't bring your merit, you can't bring all of your good deeds that you did in this life and expect that to somehow outbalance or weigh out the bad stuff that you did in this life. Jesus is the one and the only way to get to heaven. He's the only way to have your sins forgiven, to have your sins dealt with, so that when you stand in the presence of a holy God, you can stand in his presence safe and secure because you're covered by the blood of Jesus. I don't want to stand in the presence of a holy God and, and, and be up counting on my good works and be counting on the good things that I did in this world. Friends, I'll be, uh, my knees will be knocking. Instead, I'm going to stand covered by the blood of Jesus. That's for you, a Gentile, and it's the same for the Jewish people.
Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for talking to us today from your word. We thank you for a fresh reminder again of your plan, your sovereign plan through history. Lord, how you are in control of all things. We thank you for the Jewish people, for the nation of Israel, which you have resurrected literally from the dead in 1940s. And how, Lord, you raised that nation back up according to your promises in the scriptures. Lord, we ask that as we gather around this table today to celebrate your broken body and your shed blood, we would realize the same hope that was given to us as Gentiles is the same hope that is still presented to the Jewish people today. Lord, there's only one way to get to the Father, and it's by your shed blood and by your broken body. We give you thanks. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.